hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. There are so many breaking stories. Let me hit them quickly now since so much has happened uh, in the last week. Uh, February 6th, 2024, we have a breaking announcement from uh, United Kingdom uh, Health Advisory Research Group. And let me get the the direct notice. So this is Heart Health Advisory and Recovery Team, joint open letter to the Secretary of State. Uh, this uh, is an open letter from Heart, the UK MFA, UK Medical Freedom Alliance, the CCVAC, the Children's COVID Vaccines Advisory Council. It went to the uh, Honorable Victoria Adkins, a member of Parliament, Secretary uh, of State for Health and Social Care. And it was uh, CC'd to uh, Jenny Harris, CEO of the UK um, Health uh, HSA, Professor Sir Christopher Whitty, the CMO, and Maria Caulfield, another member of Parliament. Uh, and it was uh, co-chaired and signed by Dr. Claire Craig, uh, the co-chair of HEART, Dr. Elizabeth Evans, the CEO of the UK Medical Freedom Alliance, and Dr. Ross Jones, uh, the consultant pediatrician and convener of the Children's COVID Vaccine Advisory Council. Now this uh, letter, you can find it on my Substack, Courageous Discourse, uh, it lays it all out there. I'll put it in the show notes as well, but basically says, listen, the health of the people of Britain is getting worse. Uh, there are sicknesses. There are deaths. They've skyrocketed uh, after introduction of the vaccines. And the letter is very fair. It said, listen, I'll just read you a quote. The causes of excess mortality and morbidity are likely multifactorial including the physical and mental impacts of lockdowns, delays in accessing treatment, and long-term effects of COVID-19 itself. However, a fourth potential factor appears to be being deliberately ignored. That is any potential role of the messenger RNA COVID-19 vaccines. The timing of the rise in disabilities and deaths should make the vaccinations a definite suspect. As early as November 2020, many scientists and doctors, including those in the UK Medical Freedom Alliance, were highlighting the potential risks of a rushed vaccine. Now, two years ago, this group sent a letter to the same um, uh, the same organization in the UK saying, listen, childhood deaths are, have elevated. Many of you have seen the most recent uh, parliamentary um, debate on this led by Member of Parliament Andrew Brigden, now a petition that needs, I think, just a few more signatures to get to 100,000 should put this into a formal parliamentary procedure. And so my view on this is is that, yes, this is another uh, open letter uh, that's making a call. Now, what are they asking for? They're asking for, and this is an all bold, in the interim, they therefore call upon you to suspend the booster program, pull the vaccines off the market, pending an immediate review into all aspects of COVID-19 vaccine safety, as outlined uh, in their letter that they sent to the MHRA a, a year ago. So um, 
Why are these letters important? One, they provide, provide a historical record that doctors and eminent positions and of great skill and knowledge in the art and science of medicine see that something has gone wrong with the vaccines, see increasing rates of injuries, disabilities, and deaths, and they are making the historical record, number one. Number two, they're making a request to pull them off the market. That would be the best of all things. And number three, they are taking away plausible deniability uh, on behalf of the lawmakers and the people in political leadership positions. You know, People in political leadership positions in the setting of any type of debacle, the first thing they'll say is, I don't know. Uh, I didn't know if I only would have known. Well, they know because Hart in the UK, I give him a lot of credit, has put them on record knowing that there is, in a sense, a biological safety debacle unfolding right before our very eyes. So that's a key update. I wanted to provide you with that. All the details are available uh, on the links in the show note. Also, my Courageous Discourse has some commentary. I wanted to bring you up to date on another development and I've posted this as well. And this is a uh, important uh, challenge that's come out here. This is the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons files an amicus brief against the Biden administration's censorship. So what are we talking about here? Uh, AAPS filed an amicus curie brief on February 7th, 2024 in the US Supreme Court in opposition to censorship imposed by the Biden administration by pressuring social media to take down postings critical of COVID-19 vaccination. This is set for oral arguments on Monday, March 18th in the U.S. Supreme Court. It's one of the biggest cases that they're going to see certainly all year, maybe for all time. Remember, Missouri versus Biden is this landmark case of the U.S. government wants to take a paternal approach and assume that they have the right course of action and be able to censor or even delete accounts of any dissidents, anybody who disagrees with the government view on lockdown, social distancing, early treatment, vaccine safety. And it's particularly targeting people like myself, healthcare workers, doctors, and positions of authority. And uh, this press release that was put together by APS and gets commentary by their lead counsel, Dr. Andy Shafley, uh, really lays it out there. I'll provide it uh, in the show notes, but um, uh, here's a few excerpts from the from the uh, press briefing. The APS amicus brief explains that vaccine hesitancy is not a psychosocial condition, as proponents of censorship pretend, but rather is justified self-defense against a government that abuses its power by imposing vaccine mandates. Citing many historical examples of vaccine failures, this brief points out that the right to criticize a vaccine is essentially an, uh, essential, especially when government flagrantly ignores safety issues, as the Biden administration has concerning COVID-19 vaccines. The, Flor- the Surgeon General of Florida, our th- uh, third largest state, cannot obtain answers from the Biden administration about safety concerns with COVID vaccines, states Andrew Shafley, General Counsel of AAPS. Instead of censoring issues raised about COVID vaccines on social media, the Biden administration should be providing answers to the questions raised, he added. And Shafley makes a good point. It's like the government's spending all this effort trying to censor us as opposed to just legitimate scientific inquiry and answering our questions. Listen, they rolled out a novel product. You know, doctors and patients, we didn't do this. 
now we've got questions. Now, the AAPS brief is particularly critical of an amicus brief filed by the AMA and other groups supportive of the Biden administration. So we have this case where it's uh, Missouri versus Biden. Missouri is this whole group of plaintiffs, including Aaron Cariotti, who's been on my show, many others, that want free speech and our ability to you know, make commentary and present data on social media because, you know, it's so rapid to get it out there in the setting of this health emergency versus the Biden administration, which wants the full operational right to censor anything and everything that we say regarding pandemic response or even more broadly could be about um, any geopolitical issue. Um now, on the other side of this, medical organizations have actually filed briefs in support of government censorship. So think about this. These are medical groups that actually support the government in censoring doctors and nurses and healthcare personnel. This is the American Medical Association, the American College of Physicians, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Geriatric Society, and the list goes on and on. So this is stunning. So the good guys are the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, which is a chartered organization. They are available for your donations. And American Frontline Doctors, led by Dr. Simone Gold. And AFLDS was first on this amicus brief. So give credit to Dr. Gold and AFLDS. But AAPS and AFLDS, those are the groups uh, to support the only physician groups that are really standing up for you. Because remember what the doctors are doing, we're not doing this for our health, we're doing it for your health and to advise you as things unfold. This would be COVID-19, RSV, uh, monkeypox, disease X, whatever's coming down the line. So getting back to this, the AAPS brief is particularly critical of an amicus brief filed by the AMA and other groups supportive of Biden's vaccination policies. Uh, this is quote from Shafley. If adopted, the AMA uh, amnesty arguments would be a green light for government censorship of presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy, as an example, whose motion to intervene in this case to protect his First Amendment rights was denied by this court. So AAPS briefs point out that, wait a minute, even Kennedy, who's you know a presidential candidate, had a motion to intervene. It's just basically been blown off by the court. So when the federal government tells social media platforms to take action against postings, then our basic free speech Rights are gravely endangered, Shafley observes. Now, uh, to make it clear, because there's been appeals and stays and appeals and stays, uh, how the case is now captioned is different than what it used to be. So formerly Missouri versus Biden is now Murphy versus Biden. And it's kind of odd because Murphy is our Surgeon General. He's on the same team as Biden, but it's just the way it works out. So don't get confused. This is U.S. Supreme Court case number 23-411. So, wow, this is really going to be big um, next month in March, the U.S. Supreme Court case. Uh, honestly, I really can't wait to see what the deliberations are. People say, well, what is the Supreme Court going to do? In general, the first thing the Supreme Court does is it attempts to narrow the scope of its opinion. So this is very broad government censorship across multiple areas. Just watch them work on the narrow. And it may be narrowing on either context or uh, narrowing on uh, commentary directly related to government statements or agency statements or narrowing with respect to uh, some other 
you know, aspect of free speech. But I think you'll see this first attempt. It's a very, very broad case where basically the plaintiffs are saying, listen, we want wide open free speech. Not a single word can be censored. The government's saying, listen, this isn't safe for the nation, for anybody to be able to say anything in the setting of an emergency. And we want some control over the narrative. Let's see what happens. Uh, you, know, you can tell I'm on the side of free speech. I've been on the side of of censorship and reprisal on this, but I wanted to present it fairly to you and have you listen in on this and decide. And remember, it's just the Association of Physicians and Surgeons that are the only chartered organization, and they accept donations both to the organization and to their legal fund. I personally um, donate generously to them. And then also American Frontline Doctors, led by Simone Gold, you know, they stepped up and filed a brief as well. So we have two medical organizations on the side of freedom. And I counted, gosh, easily half a dozen or more medical organizations who are on the side of censorship. So let history record uh, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys in this epic battle for one of our fundamental constitutional rights, one of our civil liberties that directly relates to our inalienable rights. How can we have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness if we can't get a range of opinions on a novel, rapidly evolving medical crisis. And we have doctors who really are the only qualified people to give the highest level analysis of what's going on. And most of our top individuals are not working for government agencies. So we have a lot to look forward to, to the Supreme Court. The case is now renamed Murphy versus Biden, previously Missouri versus Biden. I want to give you an update. I want to turn our attention now to what the show is going to be this week. I've invited on first a family physician and really expert in um, medical psychology, Dr. Paul Corona. He's published a whole series of books. I've had him on my show before. Paul is really an expert on the use of antidepressants, anti-anxiety drugs, anti-psychotic drugs, and he, he works with these. Um, every day he's in California, in Orange County, California. He's going to introduce a new book, and then we're going to have a discussion about, you know, about how we deal with the issue of death after vaccination. And this is followed by uh, just a gripping and I think um, heart-wrenching interview concerning uh, the case of Miss Clampett. Miss Clampett, a uh, young woman who is the daughter of Melanie Bowen. And what makes this difficult is Melanie is the mother, and they have a mother daughter uh, estrangement. So they're not close. And uh, this young woman is, is, uh, has a boyfriend. They live together. She's working as a nurse. And then you're going to have to hear what happens on the third vaccine, the sequence of events. Uh, and Melanie Bowen, who's a pharmacist, she takes us through everything. Um, and I want your feedback on this. How do we handle such tragedy after COVID-19 vaccination? I asked Corona to help us with this as well. It is just a gripping interview. I want to brace you for this. This is not uh, light fare for sure. But let's get on with the show. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. 
one of the biggest advances in nutraceuticals and supplements is healthy cell. And the healthy cell line is extensive. I typically focus on the microgel technology. Three major products here, Immune Super Boost, the Focus and Recall, and then the REM Sleep Supplement. Each one of these is complementary and they can uh, have a role, I think, in the health of your life each and every day. I know they do in my case. Many of you know, after COVID-19 twice, I spent almost the entire year in 2022 with the upper respiratory tract illness. Now, thankfully, and I've been diligent with the immune super boost in the morning, followed by focus and energy, and then in the evening time, the REM sleep supplement. The microgel technology works, and boy, does it work fast. So go to our website, America Out Loud Talk Radio, find the banner bar for Healthy Cell, click on it, and that'll take you to the site to get a discount on your purchase of all Healthy Cell products. So let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. It's a great pleasure to bring back to the microphone and in the camera now a great friend who's made a big impact in clinical psychology, psychiatry. He is a psychiatrist, uh, but he's also a popular author. He's helped people through so many difficult navigation points, I'd say, on uh, the psychology and, and, and the psychiatric manifestations of disease that have occurred during the pandemic. And he also has the most appropriate name for the pandemic, and that's Dr. Paul Corona. People can never believe your name, Paul. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Peter. I appreciate it. Having, having you having on. Yeah, can you just, again, briefly just uh, outline for our audience who may not have met you the first time, your background? So uh, basically, I went to U University of Southern California, got a BS in biology, went to New York Medical College for medical school, uh, didn't know what I wanted to do, uh, so I liked different things in medicine, so I decided on family practice. Um, and the first 10 years of my practice, I've been in practice about 30 years now, first 10 years in family practice, but I really got interested in psychiatry during those years because new medications started coming out. I started seeing that when I was treating anxiety and depression, that their bodies were getting better, their, their pain was going away, and mm -hmm. I started seeing this uh, the somatic link with with mood. And so I really got fascinated by that. I wasn't reading about it much. I was reading psychiatric textbooks and trying to figure out why I was seeing things that most doctors weren't. And then I was understanding that it was because of I was looking for it. And I think psychiatrists typically don't really regard the body much. And then primary care doesn't really think about mood that much or the brain. So I started to see this link between, I, I call it mind-body medicine. So in the early 2000s is when I decided to branch off, give up primary care and move into psychiatry full time. And and I, I and I, because I really saw there was a need there. I was seeing that, that I was, I was seeing things that I, I didn't see were recognized easily. And that's when I started writing my first books in about 2002. 
How many total books do you have now? This is my sixth one coming out in 13 days. So the first three books called Heal Healing the Mind and Body, uh, they took me 12 years to complete, four years each. I then decided at the time that I really want to teach. So then I wrote two books um, for, for doctors. So my, my hope is to teach primary care doctors, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and to teach them uh, the corona the corona protocol, which which this current book you know, that I've been working on about four or five years is called the Corona Protocol, a scientifically proven medical solution to stop addiction, bullying, homelessness, school shootings, and suicide. Uh, Thirty years in the making. So I basically this book is really different than my first five books. Um, I uh, I really tell. I, I tell 30 original stories. It was mostly fiction. I, I, I put a little nonfiction sprinkled in, but it's mostly stories. And interestingly enough, I use a lot of, I use my name, of course, because of the title, but a, a lot of pandemic related material in the stories uh, about, you know, because of the shutdowns and I talk about the vaccines. I talk about the early treatment. And I, you know, I, I loved your book that you sent me too. And, mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I, I weave a lot of this material into the stories um, because it's so relevant to today's to today's mental health problem, which which got way worse with the pandemic. Wow. So is that true? So the pandemic, you think these indicators of population mental health really got worse? Oh, yeah, absolutely. With the shutdown, with people getting, you know, kids being home from school, increased depression in kids, anxiety, uh, people losing their job, people losing mm -hmm. their um, so, I mean, it was just a disaster for mental health. Um, and unfortunately, none of it was needed. And uh, uh, fortunately, we, the shutdowns were never warranted, as you know. And the and the clot shots were really never needed either and oh. not safe. Um, so it's unfortunate that, you know, that and I don't have to tell you because you're you're the master of this is, you know, how early treatment was ignored and, and just just a terrible job with our public health agencies. Uh, handling this pandemic, just criminal. And it, and it's unfortunately a lot of deaths have, have happened because of, mm. because of this uh, issue, um, millions around the world. Now, Paul, let's take a, a one or two of the problems in the title and why don't you develop them a little bit? So I'll let you pick one. They're actually all interesting from bullying to mass shootings, but why don't you pick one and let's try to develop it? I mean, like addiction and homelessness. Um, both very related. Uh, most most homeless patients, people are ad addicts, and they have mental health mm -hmm. issues. Uh, addiction basically means self medicating. So people who are addicts, with whatever with drugs, alcohol, whatever, they have underlying. They're treating an anxiety disorder. They're treating depression. They're treating bipolar. Um, you know, homelessness, you know, like I said, is a man, I mean, in California, we're the number one state of homelessness, homelessness in the country. Bullying has become a terrible issue, especially in schools. School shootings have to do, you know, with obviously with severely mentally impaired individuals who do such a thing. And, but a lot of these things can, and suicide, the other, the fifth one, I mean, so a lot of these things can really be helped if we, if we've, detect it early, see the early warning signs, and don't let things escalate to this point where where these terrible things happen. Well, if one was to intercept, a, let's say, one of these problems, and you know, we found a person on the verge, does psychological counseling really work? 
psychological counseling definitely works. Um, and if, especially if you do it early, my specialty is medication. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in the fact that psychotropic medications make a world of difference. They're very controversial. There's a lot of people who don't believe in it. They think it's, it's the last thing you should do, but I, I, I disagree. I, I, I believe in early intervention. I think when things are going sideways, uh, you know, this is the time where medications are, are really warranted. And, and, you know, and just like we see, we give medications for blood pressure and, mm -hmm. and heart disease, et cetera. I, this is just as medical as those things are. It's just the reason they know it's not thought that way. We don't have blood tests. We don't have mm -hmm. scans and echoes and all these things to prove it. Um, and so people are, uh, people often have the wrong idea about what medications are really about. It, it's true. I've, I've noticed, Paul, that since this whole vaccine debacle, uh, there's a medical freedom movement in the United States, and it tends to be anti-everything. So uh, uh, there are, you know, statements out there, people saying, well, you know, all of the um, antidepressants are bad and anti-anxiety uh, drugs uh, are bad. People have said, well, statins are terrible drugs, and they keep going on and on. I'm waiting for blood pressure and diabetes next. And I do sense that, like anything else, that this this kind of sentiment has swung over, where everybody wants, in a sense, kind of a natural solution. I I'm in my office right now, and I just finished patients, and I had a whole string of them like this, that are knee deep into medical problems, but but they don't want any medicines. They want just natural solutions. Are you finding the same thing? Absolutely, and I think that the because of the public health debacle. And thankfully, people aren't really picking up on this this latest uh, booster. Thankfully, right. but I, I think the skepticism is also goes towards pharmaceutical companies. You know, because I mean, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, um, Johnson Johnson. I think you know, I, I I think there is skepticism because of the, the vaccines. And you're right, that's spilled over into now anti everything, anti statin, anti blood pressure, anti. Oh, you just have to exercise. You just have to eat right. Well, yeah, you that's important. Sure, I, I talk to my patients about mm -hmm. those things. But, you know, when medications are warranted, yeah, but, you know, and pharmaceutical companies aren't always the bad guy. They they provide these amazing medications we have to work with. So there I understand the skepticism because, you know, I'm not a fan of Pfizer because of what happened. Mm -hmm. and, and but I you know, but they they're also the other side of pharmaceutical companies, the fact that they do produce life saving medications. Paul, what percent of all the drugs you prescribe would you think are kind of affordable generics? Oh, most of them. Yeah. We don't need, I mean, there's a lot of fancy expensive drugs that I work with, but for the most part, most of the things I work with is I work with a lot of people on Medi-Cal and, and cash mm -hmm. medications. Yeah. Most of my medications I work with, I can, we do it, we can do it really cheaply. And um, I, I do a lot of combinations, you know, the Corona protocol basically is my way of learning how to combine things together um, and that's why I want to teach uh, prescribers about. But yeah, but it, it doesn't have to be expensive, and it's um, and uh, yeah, it's very affordable for for most people. Now, I had a chance to read your books as a provider, so I focused on the ones for the doctors, and they're a great read. Anybody listening out there who's a, you know nurse or doctor or allied health professional, I strongly encourage you to look up Dr. Paul Corona. And uh, you know, so you can learn like what is an SSRI, what is an SNRI, and and how do these drugs mix mix and match? And and what what impressed me, Paul, about your books is that it it takes quite a bit of clinical skill 
to prescribe the right drug for the right patient. And I want I want people listening to, I said, listen, this is not some casual um, exercise. It takes a lot of skill to do it. And the people who can do it like you can really get patients better. And I, I was really convinced by that. I think you've made a compelling case, but you've gone further in this book and you've said that some of these catastrophes are really avoidable. Totally. And yeah, it's, it's, you know, I've done it so long now, 30 years of working with these medications that I kind of, you kind of know what to give and have a good idea, but you can't go by the old conventional ways of doing things. You have to combine things. You have to, it's all about it taking a really good history. It's all, as you know, as a doctor, taking a good history is, is invaluable. And once you do, and you also have to communicate with your patients and, and you can't wait around for months and months. I make quick changes. If something doesn't work, I take it away. I take something else. I'm able to get patients into remission, which is completely better, usually within a month or two at the most, wow. within, within two or three visits, because I work quickly. I don't follow the old psychiatric model where you give an SSRI, you wait a few months, you do this. That's the slow way of doing it. And it just, it draws things out. It's And so the way I've learned how to do things with the, my protocol is quick, effective, safe, ways of, of getting people better um, and completely better. Most most doctors don't get people to what we call remission, which is completely better. They get people a little bit better and then they stop and that's all they do. And so that's why I think aggressive, what I do is it doesn't mean unsafe. And I do most of my things I do are off label. So, uh, but you have to think off label, you have to be aggressive and you have to get people better because otherwise people lose hope. Yeah, Paul, people have said that antidepressives themselves cause suicide. And, you know, suicide is a side effect of the drugs. But but we also know that suicide is a manifestation. It is kind of the, the prima facie terminal manifestation of depression. So help us sort us out. Do the drugs directly cause suicide or is it the underlying disease process or both? Short answer is no. Long answer is basically... If an antidepressant is causing suicidal ideation, the person probably has bipolar disorder. So oh. if, a, if an antidepressant is, is is swinging someone into a mania or a hypomanic state, that's where the r- risk of depression is. So what that means is it's a it's a it's a misdiagnosis. So I, okay. I automatically would with, with, withdraw the antidepressant and then give them a mood stabilizer, like a Bilify as a, a common one, lithium, whatever. So basically, it's just a diagnosis issue. But the vast majority of of suicidality gets better with antidepressants. So again, when people hear that, they're they're afraid of taking things. But it's just it has to do with correctly diagnosing people and treating them correctly. And and if you just if you just throw things against the wall and hope something sticks, and not if you don't know what you're doing and you don't know how to diagnose a person correctly, things can go wrong. That's it. Yeah. So I think the the real lesson, yeah, you know, I'm internal medicine, cardiology. Uh, the real lesson is get a pro like you uh, to to navigate these drugs. And and it sounds like you have to you know be nimble and have the alacrity. Um, have you ever directly had a case where you thought the drug directly promoted the suicide? I mean, you see it for sure, because um, sometimes bipolar disorder is hidden. You don't see it right away, but then it comes out. So I but I, I tell people, you know, you have to be in communication with me. If you feel worse, if you're thinking, I always bring up suicide. If you're thinking it, stop it, call me right away because we need mm-hmm. to, to act on it. Um, and and so, so yeah, there there's risks, of course, but the risk of not treating is there too. If you don't treat people, mm-hmm. 
a lot of people, most people, by the way, who commit suicide aren't treated at all. So well, you have- I wanted to ask you that. So of, of the universe of people who commit suicide, what proportion are uh, psychiatric drugs, alcohol, drugs of abuse? Uh, what percent of cases have some of that involvement? Exactly. A lot of a lot of that, a lot of the self-medicating. Well, so if someone takes a bunch of benzodiazepines with alcohol, okay, well, that can that can kill someone. Um, a lot of celebrities do it that way. Um, yeah, so there's there's risks, um, of course, but but I think that I think that's much more common than a psychotropic causing suicide. I think that's mm-hmm. actually a rarity. But again, of course, the FDA is a ridiculous organization. Usually, how they you know they're just way. I mean, these black box warnings and they scare everybody. And then and, and the problem is when people get too scared, they're not they're too afraid to to do something. So I think it's overblown the, the the FDA warning about suicidality, and I think you know what it what it means is that people people need to be treated, and this is this is what's gonna what's driving me to to teach. And my my two teaching books aren't out yet. I finished them. I, they just need to get edited now. But um, mm-hmm. but I really my passion now is the fact that I see there's such a need out there. I want to teach. I want to get out there, travel, teach online teaching, whatever, whatever I can do to try to help people, to try to help providers help their patients. I'll tell you one thing I uh, have gained appreciation for is how complex it is. You know, the, the, the pharmacopoeia of the psychiatric drugs now is very complex. They're in different categories. Each drug is a little different. Ones you can combine, others you can't. Now, Paul, um, as we bring this to a close, I have to tell you what's gonna follow this interview. This is really well-timed is an interview I've already completed. And it was with a a woman who's a pharmacist herself. Uh, The woman is skeptical of the vaccine. She didn't take a vaccine. And she's somewhat estranged from her daughter. And her daughter is a direct care nurse, I believe a a home nurse. And uh, her daughter takes the COVID-19 vaccines and uh, you know, after the third or fourth dose, uh, she basically is found dead. Her her boyfriend comes over, oh. and uh, the nurse is slumped over at the table, literally just slumped on the table, dead. And uh, and that's what transpired. What type of um, what's the range of of psychological issues going through the mother who? who, you know, was estranged and, and, and now has, has come into this realizing that, in fact, you know, she's, she's a pharmacist herself and, and she has actually quit her pharmacy job because she's so concerned how dangerous these vaccines are and now she's lost her daughter. And how old was the daughter? The daughter, I would say, was uh, late 20s, early 30s. Yeah, I, it's, it's obviously you can't untake the shots and I've, I've seen... Many as people I know, a lot of friends and patients, these these deaths aren't making sense. You know, you don't die of heart. I don't have to tell you this. You don't die of a heart attack in your 30s to 40s unless you have very high risk factors. And we're seeing these athletes, you know, um, LeBron James' son uh, had a heart attack at 18. Are you? I mean, come on. I mean, so I, I just unfortunately the damage has been done with people who've had the vaccines and we can't take them back. And so I think it's. I've talked to another mother who lost a daughter to the vaccines too. And mm. it just, it's hard. It's hard to know what to say. And it's hard to know what to say to patients. I think you said that before when they come in and they've had all the vaccines and they're worried because they, they're hearing these stories and what, what, 
what can I say to them? I can't really say much to them. I can just, I say, well, you know, you know, I just try to just not answer it. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, they, they obviously will have to go through all the stages of grieving. I'm sure you cover that in your, you know, in your curriculum. Yeah, and, I, uh, well, and, but there has to be, a, I think, a great degree of, of regret. Um, you know, I've had family members in my family have taken the vaccine. And if any one of them are harmed, I, I'm, I'm going to feel absolutely terrible. And I think one of the things I would think of is, you know, did I do enough? Did, did I do enough? Did everything? Did I do everything I could to really sufficiently warn them about how I felt? And and uh, uh, you know, obviously we can't take it back. But Paul, I got to tell you, I just testified in Congress, and you know, I, I told Congress that you know we've got five years now of worry according to the FDA guidance. These are genetic transfer technology programs. You know, we're seeing cardiac arrest now two or three years after the shots, and so uh, there, there must be anxiety among those who took the shots, who are now are becoming aware of these risks that have, they've taken on. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, patients of mine talk to me about it. it like I said, it's, it's hard to know what to say. I, I wanna say, well, don't worry about it, but you know, um, and, and the to a mother losing a child, there's, no, there's nothing worse a human being can go through is losing a child mm. and the regret. And the, I wish I could take it back. I wish we could have, you know, um, been in touch more. I mean, the. So unfortunately, this mother has to go through the grieving process, like you said. But it's it's you know, as as having two kids myself, I can't even imagine. Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine how how difficult it would be. Well, in fact, that's what she said in the end. She goes, "Listen, if there's anything I can tell anybody else is is stay connected. Don't get estranged. It's it's not worth it. You, you know, these family members, you know, get in these arguments, Paul." And they draw a line that they're on non-speaking terms. And I'm, gosh, I've seen this my entire life. And in the end, what do people get out of this? The, this idea of, well, I'm going to show them something. I'm not going to call them or talk to them. And and in the end, I, I think it's a world of regret. It's it's so much easier just to, you know, to be nice, to be cordial, to care. And, um, you know, you get a lot, you get a lot more with sugar than vinegar, I guess. Wow, that's so useful. Paul, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Honor. Thank you. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. When God, through his grace and mercy, gave us free will, the will of the people was to live freely. To that end, we fight for the liberty of all at a time when global tyranny threatens us as never before in mankind's history. This vision is manifest at AmericaOutloud.news, a site for all who cherish free will and freedom. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Who's got time for a nasal invasion messing up your lifestyle? Crush those nasties before they become a problem. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, 
with the coupon code OUTLOUD, you'll receive 20% off the entire purchase. Go to americaoutloud.shop. That's americaoutloud.shop and use coupon code OUTLOUD. Use CofixRx because it works. Lean, pure, with premium ingredients. Global Healing's Pure Plant Protein offers 20 grams of protein per scoop. And it's a perfect way to maintain and build lean muscle while indulging yourself. It combines enzymes and probiotics to maximize nutrient absorption, improving digestion, and your gut health. Available in vanilla and chocolate flavors, elevate your protein consumption while supporting your overall wellness with pure plant protein. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We have a tough interview for you today, and I, I'm just going to say it right at the very beginning. We're doing this on America Out Loud News McCullough Report, as well as on Courageous Discourse Substack. I've invited to the other side of the microphone and camera a courageous young woman, Melanie Bolin. And uh, Melanie's a pharmacist. Uh, she lives in Oregon. And, uh, and she's going to tell us a story about her daughter, Brittany Clampett. And so, um, Melanie, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Tell us where you grew up and, and where you had your education and, you know, what you do professionally. Okay. Um, I, uh, I'm a pharmacist. I um, grew up in Portland, Oregon. Um, went to school in uh, Corvallis at Oregon State University. Um, graduated in uh, 1994. Um, Brittany was uh, my oldest daughter. Um she uh, was born in uh, 1993 um, while I was still going to school. Um, it, it was challenging. She, she attended a lot of lectures. And, uh, and, and tell us about, you know, her childhood health and, mm-hmm. and what you knew about uh, her heart. Yeah. So she was fine um, at a normal physical when uh, she was 11 years old. Um, our family doctor um, detected a little bit of an abnormal um, heart rate, uh, heartbeat. And so we saw a um, pediatric cardiologist. Um, she was diagnosed with um, a very mild uh, Mitchell valve prolapse. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had um, an echocardiogram. Um, you know, they said everything was fine. They just wanted her to be um, rechecked um, every three to four years. Um, there wasn't any recommendation for treatment um, or uh, any kind of medication or anything. So they just oh. wanted to. Monitor. And I assume she had EKGs as well, right? Yeah. yeah. And that was fine as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did the doctors ever say it was so severe that she had to get antibiotics before uh, dental appointments? No, no. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then t- tell us about her, her life later on when she became an adult. Okay. Um, she went to nursing school. Um, she was working as a hospice nurse. Um, she got uh, her first dose, um, you know, as soon as it came out in December uh, 2020. There was a pressure to put um, pressure put on all the healthcare workers to get their doses first. Um, 
So she got her first dose December 2020, um, second dose in January 2021, and she was okay. Uh, she didn't have any symptoms. Um, she got her second dose a year later. Um, in the so that'd be her third in, dose, a booster, right? 2020. Um, her, her first, yes, her first first booster, third shot. Okay. Um, she uh, was okay for a few months, and then um, her fiance took her to the emergency room um, in November um, for some fainting arrhythmia um, issues she was having. Um, so she had an appointment set up. Um, we're we're scheduled like three four months out for echocardiograms up here. I'm sure you know if that's typical. Um, so her um, echocardiogram was March um, 2023, um, and everything was fine. Um, they noticed a little bit of thickening, um, but the um, the posterior mitral leaflet is a, uh, slightly mm -hmm. thickened, mm -hmm. um, and they said uh, borderline minimal um, prolapse, um, mild to moderate uh, mitral regurgitation. The other three valves were normal. So, okay. and ju just to summarize so far, so she had Pfizer number one uh, December twenty twenty, Pfizer number two January of twenty twenty one. Then she right. goes all the way around a year until mm -hmm. February of 2022, gets the third Pfizer. But when we get into the fall of, 20, mm -hmm. uh, fall of 2022, mm -hmm. uh, she has some palpitations. Did she, actually, did she actually pass out? Did she actually hit her head and, and go unconscious? No, no, okay. feeling did. Mm -hmm. um, so that, yeah, so her appointment for um, follow-up with the echo was in March. Mm -hmm. um, she no. got her boot. Right. Or, uh, Just hang on. Or, so the echo in March of 2023. So um, uh, the main abnormality is a, a thickening of the posterior mitral valve leaflet, which happens with mitral valve prolapse over time. But there is mild to moderate mitral regurgitation. Uh, mm -hmm. What is the uh, left ventricular ejection fraction? Do you see that on the report? That's the most important number while Melanie looks for that. Just so okay. people listening, if you ever have an echo, always ask the doctor, what's the ejection fraction? The ejection fraction is the fraction of blood that's pumped out of the left ventricle with each beat. A normal ejection fraction is between 55 and 75%. Is that number on the report there? 55 to 60%. Okay, so it's right in the normal range. So when, mm -hmm. when we're concerned about myocarditis with the COVID-19 vaccines, we, we look for evidence of a reduced ejection fraction, dilation mm -hmm. of the chambers of the heart. And then we look for fluid around the heart called a pericardial eff effusion because almost always the myocarditis involves the outer layers of the heart and also mm -hmm. the pericardium, the layer around the heart. And so it's a myopericarditis, almost always. Mm -hmm. Did they mention any pericardial effusion on the report? It says there is no pericardial effusion. Okay. So things look pretty solid, spring of 2023, mm -hmm. and she moves in and gets the fourth Pfizer mm -hmm. dose. When did she get that? Um, that was actually a week before this echocardiogram. Okay. So she got the fourth dose before the echo. So yeah, we have just echo information. And then take us through what happened at the end. Okay. So um, she was asymptomatic. Um, 
And then on April 29th, um, she had, she had been out, um, doing some yard work, um, that day. She left her fiance a voicemail. Um, it was around six o'clock and, um, she just left him a message. She said, um, she was excited for him to get home, um, from work. And, uh, he got home about two and a half hours later and she, she was gone. Um, where did he find her? She had been sitting at the table, uh, drinking a cup of tea, and she she was still sitting at the table. She was slumped over the table. Yeah, and yeah. and he he essentially found her dead. Right. She she was unresponsive. Um, he tried to do CPR and he called nine one one. And okay. There, okay. There was. Yeah, and um, uh, was there? Did she spill the tea? Was there any evidence of trauma? Um, no. lacerations on her head. Did she have children? No. She had Not no yet. children. So she was married and... Uh, but they, they'd they been engaged for over engaged, two years. Engaged, living together. Okay. And um, uh, so, uh, so did the paramedics, when they came out, did they determine that she had already died? Um, yeah. Yeah, and um, uh, and then did you or the the boyfriend request an autopsy, or did the medical examiner offer it? Um, they did do an autopsy. Um, and how did that work? Who made the decision? Um, actually, the county health department did, okay. um, because of her age and it being a sudden death, because she was only twenty nine years old. Mm -hmm. um, she another week, and she would have been thirty. Right. Um, she, uh, so yeah, I guess they felt it necessary, um, to do a, uh, an autopsy, which I mean, I'm glad that they did, but it wasn't there. Um, and actually at the time that she had passed away, I didn't know that she had just gotten her last booster. Um, and so, um, uh, how many days was it after the last booster? It was from March. 23rd no i'm sorry march 17th um, yeah so when, so when people are you know when you're trying to tell a vignette like this so the listeners you know always just have the dates like she 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 took the booster and then so many days later was this uh, was the echo and then so many days later was the event that way we don't yeah get okay. confused on subtracting so do you, do you can you get get the days from the time she took the last shot to the time she was slumped over dead at the table and, and while Melanie's looking for this, the reason why this is so important is that, you know, we're trying to understand, is this related to the vaccine or not? And and uh, uh, later on, when we have vignettes, we want them to be relatively date independent. We just want to know how many days afterwards that these events happened. And so it gives us, a, you know, an idea. So it was 43 days. 43 days from the shot. Okay. And, um, and tell us about the autopsy. Okay. So um, they had told me initially it was going to take um, about three months to get the toxicology um, reports and four to six months for um, pathology um, to be completed. Mm -hmm. um, it seemed like an awfully long time to wait. Um, but uh, 
her, her toxicology came back. She had a little bit of caffeine in her system. That was the only substance um, that mm-hmm. they were able to find, which she was drinking tea. So mm-hmm. that's, that's surprising. Um, they determined that her cause of death was um, from her mental valve prolapse. Um, I was told that they don't test for vaccine injuries. Mm-hmm. And, and like I said, I didn't know she had gotten a booster. And so mm-hmm. when they started on the autopsy, I, you know, I didn't have that information. And so later I called um, to let them know that she mm-hmm. had just. And I asked them if they were going to um, test for any kind of vaccine injury or for spike proteins or, you know, I'm, I'm not a medical examiner, so I don't know mm-hmm. what exactly they test for. Mm-hmm. But um, I was told that they don't do that. Right. So there was no staining for the spike protein. No. Uh, was there any mention of myocarditis? Did they find inflammation in the heart? No. Let me, I'm so sorry. Was there any mention of fluid around the heart? You probably would have noted that. And, and then the last right. thing, this is really important for people working through autopsies. And listen, you're not the only parent who's looking at an autopsy now, You know, asking what yeah. in the world happened. Um, What's very important is the heart weight. So they measure the heart in terms of grams. And so um, I bet you'll see a number there. And I'm really curious to hear what the heart weight was. And as you're looking for that, um, it may be at the very beginning, the very end where they just weigh the organs. Um, Just for the listeners to understand, mitral valve prolapse itself it doesn't cause a sudden death. You'll see things in the literature where there may be an arrhythmic death in some people with mitral valve prolapse. But uh, mitral valve prolapse, if it leads to a problem, it would be acute rupture and then acute Mm -hmm. heart failure. And if she had acute heart failure, she wouldn't have called her boyfriend and said, hey, I'm looking for you to go home. She wouldn't be sitting up and, and, and drinking tea. She'd be really struggling for breath and calling 911. So it doesn't sound like acute heart failure. Did you find that heart weight? Um, it says the reported intact heart weight at the time of autopsy was 260 grams. Okay, 260 grams. That's important. Mm-hmm. So uh, so a heart, when it goes into heart failure due to mitral regurgitation over time, it clearly gets bigger in weight. So uh, mm-hmm. a normal heart weight for a woman is about 250 grams. It's a little bit over uh, the normal heart weight. A man, it's about 350 grams. So these are, these are you know, roundabout numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's certainly not um, heavy. Did they mention any pulmonary congestion, any problem in the lungs? And, and while she's looking for that, um, the reason why I mentioned that is if the heart begins to fail um, or if she was in a sustained arrhythmia for a period of time, like ventricular tachycardia, that can be just you know uh, 30 minutes or so, certainly three hours, the heart can fill up with fluid and cause heart failure, but she should have had enough time to call and say she didn't feel well. Right. This is really looking like a primary electrical uh, cardiac arrest. And so when people have a cardiac arrest and this happens, and I've talked to those who survive it, they say it's lights out. They literally were just drinking that cup of tea and it's lights out. There's no pain involved. It's just, it's just instantaneous lights out. You see any comment on the lungs there? No. Okay. Yeah. This has been a, a you know really a stunning um, 
vignette. And sadly, it's a vignette that's happening all over the country, all over the world now. And we're left with unsatisfied um, closure on this. I can tell you as a cardiologist and a doctor, I study this. This was this cardiac arrest was a vaccine-induced form of a cardiac arrest. And we're seeing this in the absence of myocarditis. Um, the mitral valve prolapse can't explain uh, the sudden death in this case. And I think she had some abnormality last fall that at least caused this dizziness. That was a little harbinger that something was was brewing. The only way it could have been sorted out before death would, would have been a cardiac MRI, and it may not have shown it. At autopsy, when the heart is examined, it, we, they, the doctors can't uh, slice the heart in an infinite number of slices. So little patches of inflammation will clearly be missed. The MRI has a certain limit of resolution. Uh, but we know in 800 papers published in the peer-reviewed literature, the vaccines do cause myocarditis. It's a warning. The FDA put a warning on that in June of 2021. Amelia, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the on the program, and, and we'll be getting some feedback as people listen to this. Do you have any final words for our audience, particularly to, to parents or young people out there? My daughter and I were estranged. And so all of the information that I have is is from her fiance um you know and you, you just you just never know you always think you have enough time to let wounds heal you always think you're gonna have a million tomorrows to be able to make things right you don't you don't have a million tomorrows Melanie, we're going to let that be the last word. Thank you so much for spending this time, time with us on the McCullough Report and Courageous Discourse. And thank you so much for your courage uh, and your compassion to help warn others about this, this really terrible risk of the COVID-19 vaccines. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Mm -hmm.